Turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29. Or scroll way up. You know, if, if you don't have one of those uh, Bibles with the colored tabs, are you even a Baptist? <laughs> announcements to buy you some time as you look for Deuteronomy. Uh, as announced last week, we will be having an Easter egg hunt um, following the service of April 4th. Uh, Hannah King has uh, graciously volunteered to oversee putting together a potluck. Uh, I believe it's going to be um, appetizer themed. So, um, those of you who know how to cook, and I know who you are, uh, if you are uh, interested in uh, making a contribution to the potluck, please see Hannah King. Um, and then the men's group, uh, we are nearing the, uh, the, the final chapters of uh, expository parenting. Uh, in three weeks, we will be uh, starting a new study in the book of Judges, and uh, I'm picking, uh, I'm deciding between one of two books to use for the study. I will, I shouldn't have the, my choice by next Sunday, so those, those of you men who are interested in joining that group and being a part of it, um, I can give you more details next week. Uh, a couple, about a month ago, I think we prayed for Pastor James Coates up in Alberta, uh, in, Ed in Edmonton of Alberta, Canada. Three days ago, the Justice Center uh, uh, released a statement that Crown prosecutors were dropping all but one charge uh, against Pastor Coates and that he would be released without any conditions pending his trial in early May. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that is a, a huge answer to prayer, but please continue to pray for him and Grace Life Church of Edmonton. And please also pray for, uh, I have two other um, requests for you. One is, that I ask that you would pray for Pastor John Chester, uh, a friend of mine who pastors Piedmont Bible Church in Virginia. He was the one who gave me this idea that we uh, should take just a minute or two and devote prayer towards other churches, especially those that are local and like-minded. He told me that um, without me requesting, he said that he prayed for, for us last week, he and his whole church. So please uh, pray for Pastor John Chester and Piedmont Bible Church in Virginia. Uh, a wonderful body of believers, but I don't know, but they've already shown love to us. Lastly, uh, a little girl who has come into my life lately has uh, given me a request that I can't refuse. I don't want to say her name because we're being recorded and this is going out to the internet, so I want to protect her identity for legal purposes, but you know who she is, and she has asked that, um, that you would be in prayer for her brother, Liam. She hasn't seen her brother for several years. She's very concerned about her brother. Please pray that the Lord would keep him safe, that the Lord would be kind and gracious to him, and that the Lord would surround him with people who would be committed to taking care of him. Again, his name is Liam. 
So, I've given you a few things to pray for. I'd like to give you a minute to do just that. Lord, we thank you for the good news that uh, many of the charges have been dropped from Pastor Coates. We ask that you would continue to oversee um, his pending trial. Thank you, Lord, for the, for, the, for the good news that because of his incarceration, uh, the number of interviews that his wife and those from the church that have been aired on on live television, many people have come to hear a gospel that they wouldn't hear from a lot of the more popular churches in this world. Lord, thank you for using poor circumstances, undesirable circumstances, even such as this. Thank you for using um, this occasion for this man to suffer Thank you for using that to further your gospel, which is saving lives, saving souls, bringing lost sinners to be reconciled with their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would help us to likewise count joy when we call on our trials, knowing that you not only use trials to shape and refine and build our character, but you use trials as a means to let others see this is what happens when someone whom you have touched and whom you are holding and keeping this is how they endure Lord use any circumstance in our life to further the gospel and to testify of your grace we thank you for like-minded churches and like I thank you for like-minded pastors such as Pastor John Chester. Thank you for his compassion and kindness in praying for us. Thank you for his church who prayed for us. We don't know anything about their, about their sufferings or their trials or their lot, but we know who holds them. And we ask that you would continue to be kind to them. And we also ask for kindness and grace on Liam, wherever he is. As David says in Psalm 139, he could go up the top, the tallest mountain, you're there. He could make his bed in Sheol, you are there. He could sail out to the most furthest, most remotest part of the sea, and you're still there. And wherever this young man goes, you are there. We pray that you would reveal yourself to him and Mercy and compassion, bringing him to a saving faith and a saving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins.
Deuteronomy 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. And John, I just want to thank you this morning for that, for that uh, summary of the Exodus. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it to it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God is making you with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but, with, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them. So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord your God. To go and serve the gods of those nations. That there would, will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse. That he will boast saying I have peace though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt. It's a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows on it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim, 
which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? These men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped him. Gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which was written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're reminded of the scoffings and the mockings that those who stood beside the Lord as he hung on the cross mocked and derided him, saying and accusing him that if you were really in fact pleased with him, then why weren't you coming down to save him? Just as those who would witness the devastation of Israel would see that this was done by your hand, the thought was that the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross because he displeased you. This is what the mocking, scoffing part of unbelief said as they saw him hanging on the cross. And yet we know... He wasn't there because he was disobedient. The Lord Jesus Christ was not suffering and bleeding and dying on a cross for any transgression or any breaking of the law that he himself did. It was for us. It was for our law breaking. All the curses, all the consequences that were headed our way fell upon him and he became a curse for us. Thank you, Father, for raising up a second Moses, a son of David, a savior and a redeemer who did what was necessary to save a people like us. Flip over to Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Put your finger in Romans 1 as well, because we're going to visit that passage in a little bit. I just want to remind you that beginning 
with verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul began a new thrust in his letter of the Ephesian, to the Ephesians. He has explained up to that point all that God has done in blessing the Christian and all, all that he is presently doing and all that he will do to bless the body of Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, with that, therefore, Paul began informing us what the, what the appropriate response to all that blessing is. He's, he's really dedicating and devoting the second half of, of his letter, which is, is a common theme in his writing, to what the appropriate, what the worthy life lived looks like in response to everything that God has done for us. Rather, there, this is not what you should do in hopes of God possibly saving you. This is what we should do, what we ought to do, because God has saved us. Massive difference. Massive difference. Verses 1 to 6, we saw that the worthy walk, the appropriate walk, is a walk of humble unity with the body. And then in verses 7 to 12, the worthy walk is, is a walk of diverse activity within that same body. Unity and diversity coexist alongside each other. And then in verses 13 to 16, we saw that the worthy walk is also a growing walk. Now we see another element of what the appropriate life of what the the worthy walk to the gospel is for the church. And put simply, the worthy walk is a walk of repentance. The appropriate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is repentance. And yes, it's also faith and belief, but that's another message. The worthy walk is a walk of repentance. Now, Repentance is one of those words that we can throw around all the time and we can just assume that everybody knows what it is, but I think it's helpful just to, just to define it. Repentance is not adding, merely adding something to your routine. Repentance is not merely introducing something into your day, into your walk, into your life as you would add a vitamin supplement to your diet or add an exercise routine into your day. Repentance involves an exchange. Repentance involves an exchange. There is a necessary and a required exchange in thought and in direction. Something is given up and that thing that is given up is, is replaced, it is exchanged with something else. One attitude is exchanged for another. One a, a manner of life is exchanged for another. A set of actions and behaviors or the way that you speak, the words that you use, they are exchanged for another set. Colossians 3 analogizes this as though it were changing clothes where you... You put off the old clothes, 
especially if you've been wearing them for four days. <laughs> for houses that follow quarantine protocol, that is not beyond the realm of possibility. But in, the, in this model, in this analogy, one takes off the old in order to put on the new. There is an exchange. Nobody, while wearing the old clothes, then puts on the new clothes on top. Now, Paul's doing the same thing here in Ephesians 4. Uh, and in, in, from 17 to 24, we see the put off and then the put on. In 17 to 19, Paul is focusing on the putting off. What is given up in order to prepare us for the exchange in 20 to 24. And we're going to see that next week. Today, we're just looking at what we are to put off. What we are to give up. What we are to break from. We see, the, we see the necessary break in verses 19, uh, 17 and 19. And the three points to, to hang our thoughts on are these. In the first part of verse 17, Paul says to, to not live like the world. Do not live like the world. And, and that's, that's a very broad statement. It's a very generic, a general statement. The, the following two points really, they get more specific in their, their subsets. Of the first point, which is do not think like the world and do not behave like the world. So generally speaking, the Christian does not live like the world and then specifically he does not think like the world and he does not behave like the world. Let's read what Paul has for us today. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So first, Paul gives us this very broad imperative. He says, in essence, do not live like the world. He says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord. And right there we have to stop uh, because in, these, in, in this introductory phrase, Paul is prepackaging some extra oomph. And what you're... What this means when he, when he says that I say it and I affirm it with the Lord, what that means is you are not about to hear Paul's personal whims or musings. Nor are they Peter's or any church leader's personal preference or an attempt to pass on what they themselves, as, as mere men, think the church ought to look like or sound like or be like. And what this means is, since I've already let the cat out of the bag, and, and this, is a, this is a sermon, this is a unit on repentance, what this means is that you are not to repent merely because your pastor, as a man, is telling you you need to repent. The message does not originate with me or with any normal man. You and I, for that matter, and every Christian in any, in every, in any century are expected to repent 
of sins and to walk in repentance of sins and to never allow ourselves to make an excuse for sins because this is not what any one man expects of the church. This is what God expects of his church. This is God's standard that he himself holds for his people. And so it would be very appropriate if you were just to forget that Paul says that I say it. I mean, he does have an, he does have authority and a grounds as an apostle to speak with authority. But his authority is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would be appropriate that you just forget that Paul is here in, in, from a certain point of view. Just forget that Paul's even talking and, and envision the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. Because that's precisely what he is doing. Christ Jesus himself is speaking to us through his holy inspired word. And he is saying in effect... My, my beloved church, my people, this is what I would have for you. This is what I want you to do next. And I, I think it's helpful that Paul provides that extra oomph. Because what he's about to say, it is so, it is so fundamental and it is so foundational. And yet, at the same time, it is so difficult. Repentance is not and never has been a popular message. And it is not, in one way it is an easy message to preach, and in another way it's one of the hardest things to preach, because it can be costly. So here it is. I, I say, and I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Don't live like those Gentiles live. And when Paul says Gentiles, you, you remember, he is he's speaking to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles. But what he means is, is those Gentiles outside the church. Those whose lives are outside the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Those who don't know Jesus, those who don't follow Jesus, whose culture is not Jesus's, whose ways are not Jesus's, and those who, quite frankly, have nothing to do with Jesus. Those Gentiles. In 1 Thessalonians 4-5, Paul just plainly uh, and unabashedly characterizes Gentiles as those who do not know God. I don't know if you know this, but people who don't know God and people who, who don't want anything to do with God, they have a way that they like to live. And it doesn't comport with God's ways. And they have a way that they like to think. And it doesn't match up with God's ways. They have a worldview which influences every decision they make. And someone's asking Aaron, what's a worldview? Well, a worldview... It is a set of presuppositions, or another way you could say it is it's a grid of beliefs, and some of them can be very overt and very plain as day, and you can see them a mile away. Others are deeply embedded, and you don't know until the heart really begins to speak and 
but, but all of these beliefs and presuppositions and, and, uh, and values and principles, they all influence what the individual does, what the individual does not do, and what they say, and what they think, and why they do it. One's worldview shapes, molds, and influences all of those things. And everyone has a worldview. And here is a, here is a very blunt example. One worldview would espouse that we are nothing but cosmic space dust or bags of mostly water. And another worldview would say that we, that man and women, women are created in the image of God and they live, all of them, they live in the world that God created. Now, depending on which worldview you subscribe to, there is going to be a, a, a radical, a profound difference in your attitude, in your thoughts, in your actions, in your behavior, and really in the way you live your life, based on which one of those two. And worldviews are, are like a painting. They can, and, 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 and all these different components are like different colors, and there are thousands of different ways that a worldview can be crafted. But everyone has a worldview. And Paul although not using the word worldview, he, he's already talked about this in a way back in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. He talks about, that, he says that there is a course that the world takes. There, there, there is a course, there is a pattern, there is a, there's a route uh, or a path that people who, who live in the world and who are of the world, there's a path they all take. He says that it is according to Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So this path is generally characterized by disobedience to God. And, and, and being in that system, uh, he says, people also live in the lusts of the flesh. And they indulge the desires of the flesh. And consequently, they are natural children of wrath. Elsewhere, Romans 8.5, he says that those who are according to the flesh... They set their minds on the things of the flesh. They think fleshly. They think carnally. They, they view and they process information carnally. And be, beginning of verse 6. And the mind set on the flesh is death. Verse 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to, to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not able to do so, verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The attitudes, the desires, the whims, the principles, values, goals, the rules of this world, the worldview of this world, and, and everything that flows out of that worldview, they're not merely different from God's ways, they are antagonistic and opposed to God. And what Jesus and Paul, but again, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is speaking, what, what Jesus is saying here is that as, as his disciple, as his follower, you need to reject that whole package. The whole thing. You need to break from it. 
the way that non-Christians think and behave, the way that the world lives, the way you used to live before Christ, needs to not be the way that you now live your life in Christ. There needs to be a break. That is not merely kind of important. It is necessary. It is crucial. There needs to be a break from the way you used to live to the way you live now. And how are we to live now? Again, uh, what are we to replace this old life with which we are to give up in exchange? Well, again, Paul's going to get to that uh, in verses 20, uh, 22 to 24. But in order to make that exchange, again, looking back at that put, on, put off and put on motif, in order to walk down that path, you and I have to make sure we are no longer walking down this old path. The path of the godless. In order to put on the new, we must make a necessary break with the world and its way of living. And what, is it, what does Paul mean? What, what does he have in mind? Where is he going when he, when he says to, to walk like the Gentiles, or as we've uh, uh, translated it, live like the world? Well, there's two basic component, components of living. Your thought life and your behavior. What you do with your mind and what you do with your body. I think that nicely encaps, encapsulate encapsulate summarizes how you live <laughs> and, I, and I have an M tip too okay so do not live like the world but let's get more specific do not think like the world versus the last part of 17 and going all the way into 18 now there are, two, there are four characteristics of the world's thinking that he brings up here the world's thinking is futile, darkened, ignorant, and hardened. Futile, darkened, ignorant, and hardened. So no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So let's, let's look at these four. These are all, these are all um, aspects of the way of thinking that we have to break from. That we have to repent of. Futile. Empty. Worthless. Vain. The way that pagans, the way that the godless live is futile because the way that they think is futile. It is all utterly worthless. I mean, what, what, what is remarkable is that for, for, for some time, the greatest takeaway that kids get when they go to college is that they don't know anything. And, that, and nowadays, the, I think the main message is, is everything that you've been told before is wrong. Your parents don't know what they're talking about. And if they insist you, you continue to believe what they brought you up to believe, then, well, they're being toxic. What is in vogue now is either 
you can't know anything for sure, and that we need to deconstruct everything that we thought we knew up until this point. It, it, it is a demonstration of futility, and it is all utterly worthless. It starts from nothing, and it leaves the unbeliever, the pagan, the godless with nothing. And what Paul says here, when he mentions futility, this is a one-word summary or allusion to the book of Ecclesiastes, which in summary says that life under the sun, if it's not lived in a positive response to God, life under the sun is what? What? Meaningless. Yeah. Meaningless, vanity, futile. It is like chasing after the wind. You're never going to grab it. And even if, if in some way, even if you could grab it, you can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. You can't take, stick, put the wind in your pocket and go somewhere and do something with it. The whole effort is a complete waste of time, energy, and quite frankly, your life. The way the pagan thinks, it goes nowhere, it doesn't do anything, and he can, he can stare up at the ceiling or into his own navel until the cows come home, and all of his thinking doesn't explain the beginning of the universe or the grand end that it is, that is coming. And all he can do is conjecture and speculate. But in the final analysis, when, when all is said and done, his thinking, his conjecturing, his speculating doesn't leave him, it doesn't give him, it doesn't equip him with anything that he can take with him when he dies, nor does it prepare him for the world to come. Everything the world fumes over and makes such a fuss about, I would say, is simply one pursuit of pleasure or one pursuit of ease after another, and at the end of the day, when all is said and done, it goes up in a puff of smoke. And only when it is too late does the pagan realize the utter futility of his life. Earlier this week, I saw this and I thought this is a very apt illustration of futility. I gotta find it. Okay. A woman named Bridget Adams. When was this article written? I don't know when this article was written. There was a woman named Bridget Adams who appeared on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week. Under, with this headline, freeze your eggs, free your career. She was single and blonde, a, va a vassal, vassal graduate who spoke, spoke fluent Italian and was working in tech marketing for a number of prestigious companies. Her story was one of empowerment, how a new fertility procedure was giving women more choices, as the magazine noted provocatively, in the quest to have it all. That is, Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? I want it all. And I can't have it all. Adams remembered feeling a wonderful sense of freedom after she froze her eggs in her late 30s, despite the $19,000 cost. 
Her plan was to work a few more years, then find a great guy to marry and still have a house full of her own children. Things didn't turn out the way she had hoped. In early 2017, with her 45th birthday looming and no sign of Mr. Wright, she decided to start a family on her own. She excitedly unfroze the 11 eggs she had stored and selected a donor. Twelve, uh, two eggs failed to survive the thawing process. Three more failed to fertilize. That left six embryos, of which five appeared to be abnormal. The last one was implanted. And on the morning of March 7, she got the devastating news that it too had failed. Adams was not pregnant. Her chances of carrying her genetic child had dropped to zero. And she recalls, quote, screaming like a wild animal, throwing books, papers, her laptop, and collapsing to the ground. Now, not, not every expression of vanity is like that, but I think that is a vivid picture of the pagan mind who wants to be the captain of their own destiny. And they're going to formulate, they're going to craft their life the way they want it, and they're going to have it all. And in the final analysis, it all goes up in a poof of smoke. Now, why is, why is the, the godless's thinking so futile? Well, that's because it's darkened. The second quality that we are to repent of, darkened. The godless person's mind is darkened and it's, and it's excluded from the life of God. Now, if this is God's world, and, and it is, and if God, if, if, if the one who created, if God was the one who created everything and, and he set everything in motion and he is determined to glorify himself by feeling all things, which Ephesians 4.10 says he has. And if all things find their purpose in him, which they do, and if he sustains everything, and he upholds everything by the word of his power, which Hebrews 1.3 says he does, and if he is the one who's personally going to wrap everything up, and he is the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. And he is the one who's going to cause heaven and earth to melt away with intense heat. And he is the one who's going to forge a new heavens and a new earth, which he will do all those things. Then I would say this, those who reject the God who has done all that, is doing all that, and will do all that, have absolutely nothing substantial to bring to the discussion. Right? They, they, they can utter many words. They can write many books. They can have dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts. They bring no substance to the discussion because they totally miss the point and they reject the most fundamental premise of truth, namely that they live in God's world and they aren't God. They reject the notion that with him being God, he has the right to speak. He has the, define, the right to define truth and to define and to set the parameters. They reject that. 
He has those rights. They don't. Now, we need to reject that philosophy or that attitude or that worldview that rejects God's rightful prerogative to say what is and what is not. We need to break from that way of thinking. Because we're supposed to grow in the way of God. We're supposed to grow, we're supposed to embrace the truth of God. And we're supposed to grow in the truth and in the grace of God. And how can we do that if we are yoking ourselves mentally and philosophically with those who do not pull in the same direction? most common way that I have seen this, even among professing Christians, is when they stand and they, 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 they position themselves as arbiters and as judges over Scripture. And they say things like, did God really say that? Now, and do I need to remind you who the first voice was that said that? Who, who first cast suspicion and doubt on the veracity and the reliability and the truthfulness of the Word of God? Those of you who have been in Sunday school so long, and the, the, impulse, the impulse is to say, Jesus, no, it wasn't Jesus. <laughs> How can we walk with Jesus, who is the way the truth, and the life, if we also try to walk with those who take a different way, hate the truth, and as Paul says in this very passage, are excluded from the life of God. You can't. You can't. A team of yoked animals cannot pull the cart in two directions at the same time. It will split the cart. Now, why are their hearts darkened? Well, because they are ignorant. This is the third quality. Ignorance. At face value, Paul is saying that the pagan mind is darkened and excluded from life due to his ignorance. It may seem, on a surface level, that, that Paul is freeing the pagan from moral culpability. One might say, how can, how can the unbeliever be held accountable when he doesn't know any better? Well, Scripture doesn't grant that concession, and neither does Paul. This is why I asked you to turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, 18-25. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, mark this, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through power, uh, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. If, if I were to somehow have a Porsche up here on the stage... Nobody in their right mind would say, wow, that Porsche just magically, or just it just happened to come together. That's amazing. No, you would all instinctively know by the nature, by, by virtue of the fact that this is a finely crafted machine that, that is designed. 
All the pieces are designed to fit together and to work together. If I were to show you a switch watch, which I don't have, by the way, but if I did, you would know that the watch didn't just come together on its own. It was made. In the same way, you look up at those mountains. You look at the beauty of the trees. You look at the design of this world. You look at things on... Those of you who have a microscope or just Google this, look at the cells. Look at the structure of the cells. It's like trying to it's like, it's like looking at one of those Waldo pictures. It's not just a bunch of chicken scratch. It is the little bits of design and patterns and vibrant colors. You you look at creation. God has made evidence of his presence and of his power known so that as so that as Paul says, where is it? So that his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen, verse 20, being understood through what was made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, there's that word again, in their speculations and their foolish heart was what? Darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for, the, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Remember, the truth was seen it is suppressed in unrighteousness. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God has left a witness, testimony, that corroborates his, himself, his existence, and, and enough of his attributes are plainly, clearly seen and understood that even the, even the pagan mind knows he is there. But what does he do with that knowledge? What does he do with the knowledge that God is there? He suppresses it. He pushes it down. In unrighteousness, meaning when Paul says he, he, he suppresses it in unrighteousness, it means that it's, it's not the conclusion the evidence leads to. It's the wrong conclusion, but he arrives at it anyway, because it's the conclusion he wants to arrive at. Where the evidence takes him, he doesn't want to go down, he doesn't want to go there. And so he volitionally, willfully, Suppresses the truth of God. And you know what suppression is like? Those of you who have played in a pool, if I were to throw you an inflatable beach ball and you put that under the water, what does the ball want to do? It wants to bop up and bop you in the noggin. The ball wants to come up. In order to keep the, the, the beach ball under the water, you have to hold it. You have to push it. You have to exert effort to keep it down there. That's what the 
That's what the unbeliever does to the knowledge of God's presence. And try as he hard, he, he knows that it's still there. You've heard of the princess and the pea? The fairy tale about a princess who proves her nobility because, uh, through being so sensitive that she can, she can sense even a single pea pl uh, placed under a whole bunch of mattresses. The knowledge of God is that pea. And the suppression that the unbeliever does is, is, the plate, is the piling on of mattress after mattress after mattress after mattress after mattress. And yet, like that hyper-sensitive princess, which, I guess if you read it through, uh, the prince wants to marry her. I don't know if I, if I would want to be with someone that sensitive. <laughs> the unbeliever, like that hypersensitive princess who knows the pee, there is something still there. I can feel it. I am on a mile-high pile of mattresses, but I can still, 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 still feel that something is down there. The unbeliever knows that God is there, and yet, despite knowing to one degree or another, he, like Pharaoh of Egypt, says in his heart, who, who is the Lord that I should worship him? Who's God that he has a right to say anything about what I can and can't do? Now, Paul might have been thinking about Pharaoh because Pharaoh's fatal flaw was what? What? A hardened heart. And that's the fourth mark that Paul lays down that we are to break from. A hardened heart. And just as the trampling of feet and the heat of the sun hardens the walking path so that the seed that is sown has no chance to get into the soil, the hardened heart, the heart that is, that is hardened because it, in, in its futility it rejects God and again and it rejects God again and it, it keeps turning away and turning a blind eye to the evidence. That same heart, as it gets hardened, the truth of God cannot even penetrate its surface. And this hardened heart, it doesn't care. It doesn't care if truth is staring it in the face. It doesn't care. Mark 3, 5-6, Jesus was grieved at the hardness of heart that was offended when a lame man was healed on the Sabbath. How dare you heal that man? Don't you know that we're supposed to not do such and such on the Sabbath? What, what kind of rabbi are you? The hardened heart is like the stiffened neck of a mule. You can't turn the mule's neck. You can't change the heart that's hardened. They are so set in their ways that God himself could be standing in their midst and saying, you need to change. And the hardened heart says, no. Do not be that unbending. And do not be 
so committed to your old ways that when God tells you, whether to your face audibly, which I don't believe he does anymore, or through his word, when he instructs you and gives you marching orders, don't be so unbending, unflinching, unturning in hardness of heart that you tell God no. Now, why is it so crucial that we make an effort to cease worldly thinking? Because unfettered worldly thinking leads to unrestrained worldly behavior. And so we see in verse 19 that we're not to act like the world. Paul says, and they, having become callous, and I, what is this? Callous, something that is calloused is... Uh, a hand that is callous is a, is a hand that is, has lost sensitivity. Some of you, because of the work that you do, I could, I could bring you up here and I could show you someone with real man hands. Man, hands that have been toughened. Skin that has been toughened by hard work or, or wear. Only Paul's not talking about hardened and toughened hands. He's talking about toughened calloused moral sensibilities of the darkened, hardened mind. At some point, repeated, futile thinking leads to mental and moral darkening, which in turn leads to willful, perpetual ignorance. And as the mind continues this, this downward, destructive spiral, there comes a point where the conscience can't yell anymore because it's it's it has completely lost its voice. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about hypocrites and liars who, and false teachers who, who deceive so much that they sear their consciences as with a branding iron. And maybe you know, maybe you are acquainted or you've seen somebody who can lie and deceive without even without preparation, without thinking, at the drop of a hat, they can tell you a tale and sing you a song. And they're good at it because they've done it over and over and over. Their consciences are seared. Whatever nerve, whatever impulse used to say, stop it. This is wrong. There are consequences for that. You should not do this. That voice is silenced. And there's nothing left to hold back that sinful impulse. And all restraints are thrown off. And in this callous, senseless state, the only feeling that is felt and the only voice that is heard is the voice of the sinful desires of the heart that says, feed me. Gratify me. Give me what I want. And in that dreadful, pitiful state, with all restraint cast aside, nothing holding them back, all safeties are off. They have, as, as Paul says in verse 19, they have given themselves over to sensuality. In a nutshell, sensuality is the muckiest muck that you could think of. They have given themselves uh, over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. 
Maybe you've heard uh, uh, sad tales about drug addicts. And they, they, they started with something light, and then they got to a point where that wasn't enough, and they had to try something else. And then they built up a resistance to that, and they needed to try something else, and something else, and something else. And that's how it is with this. They, they've given themselves over to sensuality for all manners, all kinds of impurity. Nothing is off limits. No option is off the table. All offers considered. And they, they give themselves over to, to this pursuit with greediness. Now Romans 1 says that God gave them over, but I want you to notice here, Paul Paul's stressing that they, they give themselves over. They give themselves over. There comes a point where God pulls back on his restraining grace, and he gives futile, darkened, willfully ignorant, hardened people who become calloused and indifferent and even resentful at God's attempts to curb their sinful appetite, and they fight him, and they fight him, and they fight him, and he says, okay, you want depravity? You got depravity. And you get the consequences that come with it. And he no longer restrains their sin, and these men and their sin, Paul says, they give themselves over. This is the same word used to describe Judas handing Jesus over. And in some translations it said that Judas betrayed Jesus. These men are betraying themselves. They are giving themselves, they are handing themselves over to destructive sin after destructive sin after destructive sin. And even as they reap the consequences of their sin, as judgment falls, they can't stop pursuing more of that sin, which is even destroying them as they do it. Maybe you've seen those, those progressions, uh, uh, like the mugshots of certain drug addicts as they've been arrested and detained over the years. And at the beginning, they look perfectly normal. And by the end, and I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, but they look something like, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, where their hair has come out and their eyes are all distorted. They, they, look, they don't look human. And maybe you've looked at those progression charts and you wondered, how could they keep doing that to themselves? Why can't they stop? They can't. They've given, they have been given over and they've given themselves over and they can't stop the very thing that is destroying them. Genesis 19 soberly illustrates this in the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are still searching for the angels despite being blinded. Genesis 19.11 says that the men of the city, both great and small, they wearied themselves. This is the word uh, to, to, to become exhausted. They didn't just stop when they got blind. They kept searching for the door. Now, I would think, I would think that, that if I were in that situation and I'm doing something, I'm pursuing something that I should not be doing, that's not God-pleasing, and God strikes me with blindness, 
I would think, wouldn't you? I would think that some people would go, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, wait. Did, did the lights go out or did someone pull something over? Oh wait, you're blind too? Whoa, something's not right here. Something's not right because this surely doesn't happen every day. You would think that that would get enough of their attention to make them consider that maybe, maybe the judgment of God is in this. Maybe we should stop doing what we're doing. But no, they wearied themselves. They didn't stop. They wearied themselves. They exhausted themselves trying to find the doorway. So given over and driven by their sinful lusts. So strong was the compulsion to satisfy their depravity. They exhausted themselves, even after being supernaturally and sovereignly blinded in judgment. And that says something about sin. These were men who were utterly and hopelessly given over. One man, one man describes this as unbounded, uninhibited, unrestrained, insatiable, degrading, and defiling passions. And they will never let you go, and they will destroy everything you hold dear. And if you have discernment, if you have godly sensibilities, maybe you've wondered, how, how is it that, that the wicked can continue doing the wicked things that they do? How, how is it that musicians and celebrities can perform the most debased acts that they do and be watched by people? How, how, how could Cardi B and whoever her companion was, how could she perform as she did at the Grammys? as she did in the music video, how could abortion doctors talk so casually about their trade and the merchandising of butchered baby parts while eating salad and drink, sipping red wine? How can politicians repeatedly tell bold-faced lies to people knowing full well they're not going to keep them? How could the how could the Nazi party or, or Stalin's regime kill millions and millions of people? How, how, how can murderers keep on murdering? How can thieves keep on thieving? If you've ever wondered how wicked people keep on doing what they're doing and not stop, it's because they've become callous and they've been given over and they've given themselves over to their destructive sin. Futile thinking, darkened thinking, ignorant thinking, hardened thinking results in a calloused, unfeeling, unfettered, unrestrained heart that relentlessly, recklessly, and unabashedly pursues towards sin. No restraint, no curbing of the sinful appetite, no feeling, no guilt, no fear of God, no fear of man for that matter, no consideration for anything 
but that sinful desire being gratified. Now, some might say, Aaron, I, I, know some, I know some people who aren't Christians. I know some unbelievers, and they're not all that bad. They're not anything like what you're comparing. They aren't these calloused sociopaths that you're describing. And I would say they may not be that way now, but what you have to see is Paul is compiling a profile. He's describing the profile of the world that they live in and the pattern. This pattern describes the principles and the course of the world they walk. And I would say this, given enough time, and I, I, I'm serious, given enough time, and without the restraining grace of God, this is what all men inevitably become. And if you doubt me, I would challenge you to ask yourself, what do you really think, the, what, what, what does the Bible say about sin and about man? In Genesis 20, God withheld Abimelech from violating Abraham's wife. In Daniel 4, God restrained the madness of Nebuchadnezzar. In 2 Timothy 2, 6 and 7, Paul talks about God actively, in, in the present time, restraining, uh, and it, it's either Satan or the Antichrist. I'm, I'm not going to get into about who's who. But the point is, is God is actively restraining evil. And he does that far more often and to far greater degrees than we give him credit for. And without this restraining grace of God and given enough time, all men would become these sinful sociopaths. Remember what happened in Genesis 6-5 when, when men still lived for 900 or so years. What did the Lord see when he inspected the earth? What did he find? Someone tell me. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent, don't let that slip by you. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think Moses was putting time and effort, how do I really explain how bad it was? And so one takeaway is this. We must thank God that he not only restrains sin, but that he has intervened and he has saved people like you and people like me, and he has prevented us from going down that path of wanton destruction that we were upon. God saved you from your sin. And that is no small thing. The worthy walk is a growing walk. Growth is the goal of the church. And if we are to grow as individual members and contribute to the growth of the church, beloved, you simply cannot go on living and thinking and behaving like someone on the road to judgment and hellfire.
Christ himself is saying to us in this passage, I don't want you to walk like that anymore. It's destructive. It'll bring only misery and harm. And what's more, going down those roads means that you're not walking down the way I want you to walk. There needs to be a break. And we'll see next week what, what Christ would have us replace that old path with. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your intervening and restraining grace and holding back our sin in saving us from our sin. Your hand of providence, your mercy, the kindness of you ordaining what does and does not happen and come to pass so frequently you are good to us and we don't give you the credit for it. We thank you for every kind thing. We thank you for every, for every occasion that you have protected us, that you have hedged us before and behind. Help us to let go of the way of life and the way of thinking and the way of behaving that needs to go if we are to grow in Christ-likeness. Amen. Amen. Turn our attention now to time, the time of uh, observation of communion. What is communion? Communion is when we look at the offering of Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, the eternal Son of God wrapped in human flesh, the offering up of that unique person on the cross of Calvary so that sinners might be forgiven so that those who come to him might be saved we as, as those who have come to him we look back we, we show our gratitude we worship our savior we appreciate our savior and we also look forward in anticipation of when he comes back for us this ceremony is reserved only for those who belong to the Lord. And Paul strongly warns us that those who don't judge the body rightly should not partake of the elements. And so if you are not in right relationship with your Lord, if you're not in right relationship with the body of Christ, I would plead with you to let the elements pass. Paul himself says that he who drinks, eats or drinks the, the body or the blood in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. So Daniel will play in a moment and give you time to examine your own heart. And while the elements are being distributed, please use this time in prayer and silent reflection to consider that warning. Now I invite you to prepare your heart for communion.
Matthew 26, 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And this is language reminiscent of the covenant at Sinai. And most of you, I know we have some visitors, most of you were here two weeks ago when we read the blessings and the cursings of that covenant in Deuteronomy 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember how long it took us to read through all the curses that were promised for the breaking of the covenant and taking our place? This is the love of Jesus for, for you, my, my friends. His love is far deeper than, 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 than you know. He went to that cross so that all those curses that were headed to you would fall upon him. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And to that we drink this in worship and gratitude. hard not to, it's hard to keep these as mini-sermons and not develop into full-grown sermons. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your love for us. For your sacrifice, for, for our benefit, for our gain. And doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We love you, Lord. Would you stand with us for one last time?